And now for a look at Ukraine's rich Jewish heritage, then and now, brought to you by the Ukrainian Jewish Encounter based in Toronto, Ontario. This is Pavlina, producer and host of Nasholos Ukrainian Roots Radio. Ria Kleiman is a journalist who is little known today in the Jewish or Ukrainian communities, or for that matter, by Canadians in general. But in her day, this intrepid journalist from Toronto reached international acclaim for her coverage of the Soviet Union, including the 1932-33 man-made Ukrainian famine known as the Holodomor and the rise of Nazi Germany. Yaris Balan is the director of the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Alberta, where he is also the coordinator of the Cool Ukrainian Canadian Studies Centre. During his research on the Holodomor, Yaris stumbled onto Ria's reports. He was instantly intrigued by her story and began to research her life and work. He has since spoken about Ria Kleiman extensively and is currently working on her biography. Yours kindly agreed to tell us about his work as well as the work of this remarkable Jewish Canadian journalist. So, Yaris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, Ria Kleiman, I uh, just recently found out about her. And how did you find out about her? I mean, it was during your research, but was there some something specific? Because I had done a lot of research, although not as much as you because I'm not an academic, but I had never heard of her. Well, this is kind of a serendipitous find in the course of doing other research. The cool Ukrainian-Canadian Studies Center at CIUS was doing research on the history of Ukrainians in Canada in the interwar period. And uh, we went through archives and various sources, the Edmonton newspapers, the Edmonton Journal, and the Edmonton Bulletin for certain years, in the interwar years. And I specifically chose 1932-33 because I wanted to know what did the Canadian mainstream newspapers report about what was going on in the Soviet Union. The impression is that the community felt that the Soviets did such a good job of suppressing the information that nobody knew about the famine until after the Second World War and when immigrants came from Central and Eastern Ukraine and areas that were affected by the famine who started writing and talking about their experiences. Right. What we discovered shocked us, actually, that there was lots of coverage about the Soviet Union in the Edmonton Journal and the Edmonton Bulletin. Those we had to go through, you know, looking at microfilms, hiring somebody to go page by page by page and pull all the Ukrainian content. But uh, the Toronto Star and the uh, Globe and Mail are now available as searchable databases. So we went into those and found an incredible amount of information. I mean, in the Toronto Star and the Globe, the Star in particular, there were almost every day of the week, there were five, six, seven items related to the Soviet Union. Front page news story, uh, a couple of uh, human interest story, a letter to the editor, an editorial or an opinion piece all kinds of stuff. And in amongst all of that, there were lots of references to the disaster of collectivization and the problems with the five-year plan, as well as all kinds of spin that presented it all in a very positive light. So there was a mixture of good and bad. When that happened, I also re- began to realize that depending on the newspaper, the spin was different. So the Toronto Star was very liberal and sort of soft on the Soviet Union. Right. The Globe was more conservative. And I thought, well, you know, at that point, Toronto had five newspapers, including the Toronto Telegram. Mm-hmm. So I, I then uh, hired a couple of students at Trent University and said, could you go through 1932-33, page by page, because it's not available searchable, but it's, uh, looking, looking at microfilm. Well, these students worked for a month or so and then threw the towel in because you have to really love that kind of research to sit there yeah. uh, going through newspapers. I do. 
But <laughs> one of the students, one one of the students, found three or four articles in what was obviously a series by Rhea Kleiman, who I'd never heard of. So uh, after the students threw in the towel, I managed to find some money, and I hired my colleague and friend, Dr. Sahit Tipkoff, who was the assistant director of CIUS, to go through, first of all, 1933, and that's where we found 21 articles by Rhea about this incredible trip she made through the famine lands as it was billed. And then I had him go back to 1932, and there was another 21 article or 22 article series about her trip that she made just before that to the far north and seeing the prisoners being used as slave labor in the mines and in the forests. And she wrote a series of articles about that. So that was where, where it started. And then from that, I then began doing more digging to find out about her background, who she was, how she ended up there. And the story just became more and more and more interesting. She was a very interesting person. I mean, she was born in Poland, I guess, as a child, came to Canada in that first wave of, of immigration from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And she started out life with a disadvantage. Yeah, she came from a very poor immigrant family. We've learned a little bit more literally in the last few weeks even. Her father and mother emigrated in 1906 when she was two years old, and uh, she had two older brothers who were with her as well. And they settled in the north end of Toronto, just north of Dundas Street and uh, just off Young Street, just north of the downtown, in a very poor neighborhood. I've got photographs of what the street she lived on looked like in those days. Slum housing, factories, you know, right next door, this kind of thing. So they were dirt poor. Uh, they moved after a number of years, but uh, her early years were, were very difficult because she was six years old and she fell under a streetcar trying to get on a streetcar following a Victoria Day parade. And they amputated her left leg below her knee. Aww. So she was in and out of hospital for months and actually years because, of course, as she was growing, they had to adjust the prosthesis and stuff. But she was a tough little girl and uh, also obviously very naturally bright. And one of the people who visited her was a man named Robertson, who was the editor and the publisher of the Toronto Telegram. And he was also a philanthropist who supported Sick Kids Hospital, where she was. Okay. And he began talking with her, and he asked her once, you know, what would you like to do when you grow up? He said, I want to be a writer, like a journalist. And he gave her a copy of the Bible, <laughs> the King James edition, I guess, and said, you know, read this, you'll learn everything you need to know about writing. <laughs> but she was very determined, and he looked in on her periodically. And then the next horrible thing that happened to her was her father died when she was 11. Aww. And that left the mother now with six kids. There's another three were born in Canada. And so Rhea, at the age of 11, went to work in a factory and was taking some classes, you know, in the evening or whatever. Basically managed to then take some secretarial courses when she was a teenager and learned how to be a stenographer secretary, a practical thing, so she could help mm -hmm. support the family. I've learned since that her mother was actually illiterate. Huh. I just got a few weeks ago a copy of an attempt. She applied to get a Canadian birth certificate in 1927, just before she was going to Europe. And on it, uh, the first thing is she already spelled her name C-L-Y-M-A-N, but the original spelling was K-L-E-I-M-A-N. Oh. And they scratched out her C-L-Y name on it. And on the form, her mother, who signed with an X, because it was submitted on her mother's behalf, mm -hmm. it stated that she was born in Toronto and delivered by a midwife probably to simplify matters. So she got a birth certificate, I guess, saying that she was born in Toronto, when in actual fact she wasn't. Huh. The application also indicates that her father worked as a junk dealer. Huh. So this is we're talking a woman who grew up in very difficult circumstances, right. but was very determined, and um, she was ambitious, and she wanted to see the world. So she moved in 1925 to New York, 
and got a job working for a psychoanalyst. I have a feeling she was either a receptionist or just a secretary. Mm -hmm. She certainly wasn't doing psychoanalytic work. But it was probably while she was in New York that she got involved with radicals of her generation. This is a time when there's all kinds of propaganda about how wonderful the Soviet Union was, women had equal rights. And so a lot of young people, and many of them Jewish women too, uh, were attracted to it. And she set her as her goal. She wanted to go see this new society that was being born uh, across the ocean. So she managed to get a job first in London, working for, of all things, the Alberta government. In London? Uh, do, yeah, doing public relations. So she worked out of Canada House. The Alberta government had an office then, as I believe it still does now, that promotes tourism, investment, awareness of Alberta uh-huh. and Great Britain. And so she worked there for a year. Uh, this was a great job when you think about it. She's gone from New York to London. It's an exciting, big international capital. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, but her goal was to go east. And so she applied and got a student visa to study French in Paris, French language courses at the Sorbonne for three months, and at the same time was teaching English on the side to help pay her expenses. After her student visa ran out, she didn't go back to London, much to the consternation of her friends who thought she was crazy. You know, uh, you got a great job here, you got friends here, but she thought it was too easy. Uh-huh. She pushed on to Germany. Now, this is 1928 now, and the Nazis haven't come to power yet, but they're surging in popularity, and there's clashes between them and the left, the Bolsheviks, the communists. It's a very dynamic time, exciting time. She picked up a bit of German, and while she was in Germany, she got news that the visa that she applied to go to the Soviet Union finally came through, and so she got a copy of her visa in Berlin and jumped on a train on December 28, 1928, for Moscow. Now, there's evidence that she was actually a member of the Communist Party by this time. Hmm. Uh, she might have actually joined it in New York or certainly in Britain. There's a reference in some intelligence intercepts to her being a courier for the Communist Party hmm. uh, activists there. That certainly would have helped her get permission to go to the Soviet Union. But she got her papers. She shows up in Moscow. She's 24 years old. She uh, doesn't speak the language. She knows nobody. She hasn't even booked a hotel or anything. Wow. And she's got $75 or 15 pounds sterling to her name. Huh. Uh, you know, so not a lot of money. She's wandering around the main train station, and this guy notices her and sees that she could use some help. And so he steered her across the street to a hotel where there was a correspondent with a Chicago newspaper who was there with his wife. She spent the first night sleeping in their bathtub. <laughs> And uh, they helped her find a place to stay. And it looks like they also introduced her to Walter Durante of the New York Times. The wow. notorious Mr. Durante. I was just going to say, or is like they had that one thing in common was they were both amputees. But their reportage really diverged. Well, when uh, Rhea went to work for him, she went as his assistant. Huh. So she probably did a lot of running around, you know, doing a variety of things. There's an open question because, you know... Durante was an unseemly character. He was into drugs and orgies and yeah. all kinds of things. Yeah. He had all kinds of affairs with young women. In some cases, the women threw themselves at him. It's unclear whether she got the job because she submitted to his advances or not. But she used the opportunity to learn Russian. She had a gift for languages. And she also learned how to craft newspaper stories from him. And mm. after nine months working for him, she was in a position where she could start selling her own stories 
to newspapers, chiefly the London Daily Express, which is owned by a fellow Canadian, Lord Beaverbrook. Hmm. So her stuff started appearing there, but she didn't get a byline. It was just from our special correspondent. It was never identified with her. But she had to navigate the vagaries of dealing with the Soviet censorship. You had to be very careful with the stuff, the, the stuff that you sent out of the country because the censor didn't like it. You'd get into trouble. They'd cut stuff or they could kick you out. She was able to do that. So by late 1929, she's already supporting herself freelancing. She moved in with a, an ordinary Russian family in what's called a kommunalka, or communal apartment. There were 14 people living in basically three rooms. She had one room to herself. They shared a kitchen. They shared a bathroom. And, of course, she could pay in hard currency because she was paid in pounds. Right. And she had access to stores that foreigners could get access to that regular Russian citizens couldn't. So she was able to help them, but it gave her a sense of how, in this worker state, what life was like for an ordinary worker. It was hard. It was brutal. They were, you know, living in these horrible conditions. So she really got a rude awakening. It was gradual, and it's it's unclear when she began to see the light. She went thinking that, well, you know, women <laughs> have achieved equality here. Yeah. Workers are in power here. They're modernizing. This is the future planned economy. This is where the world is going, and they're ahead of everybody. Gradually, she began to realize what a horror story the Bolsheviks were creating there. She decided to make this trip to the far north in 1932, because, of course, there were all these reports about how the Soviets were using political prisoners as slave labor Mm -hmm. in the forests, harvesting timber and processing it. And this was a time when Canada was losing its timber market in Great Britain. The Brits were starting to buy a lot of timber from the Soviets because it was cheap. Hmm. And of course, the argument was is that, hey, well, of course it's cheap. They're using slave labor. How can we compete? And so Canada, under Prime Minister Bennett, mounted a very fierce campaign, first of all, to try to get the Brits and all the Commonwealth countries just to buy timber from fellow Commonwealth countries and to support each other through trade and not buy cheaper stuff from the Soviet Union. Right. So when Rio went and actually saw physical evidence of slave labor being used, political prisoners being used in precisely this fashion. She wrote a series of articles that she managed to get out to the West without going through the censor. And when they appeared in the West, this really ticked off Soviet authorities. And as well, she eventually ended up writing, I said, 21 articles about that trip that she made. One of the places she stopped at was uh, Petrozavodsk, which is in Karelia, historically finished part of Russia that the Russians grabbed, still have. And she visited with Finns who were there from Canada and the United States, communist Finns who came to help build this wonderful future society. They'd been working in northern Ontario in the forestry industry and, hmm. and in other places and, and went there and worked. But she describes visiting their communities, but also after Petra's divorce, she took off north to a place called Kem on the White Sea. And it's the administrative center for the Solovetsk prison camp, the infamous Solovetsk Island prison that went back to Tsarist times, a horrible place to be incarcerated, and they had 10,000 political prisoners there, many of them Ukrainian intellectuals, artists, Mm -hmm. who had been arrested in 1931-32 by Soviet authorities. But she wanted to go to the island and see for herself. But Kem was a closed city. They didn't allow foreigners in. She had no permission to be there, but she took the train. And because she was totally fluent in Russian and knew how things worked, got off the train. The train left, and it only came every couple of days. So she had a couple of days, three days there, before the next train came. And she uh, got a room, 
I've described in very moving terms coming to this hotel and not in the greatest shape. And there's this sort of sad sack woman mopping up the lobby. She asks, you know, where's the dishwater? Where's the, the manager? And she says, well, she's upstairs folding linen. So she went upstairs. She showed her a room, which was classic. You know, the bed was like, you know, sagging mattress, mm-hmm. springs, a uh, broken window, dust. Mm. Uh, but she's sort of great. She was already hardened and used to conditions in the Soviet Union. She was thrilled to get it. And this cleaning lady who was uh, working in the, in the lobby came upstairs to dust and Rhea laughed. It was a nervous laughter. She couldn't believe that she pulled this off. But she, here she was in this closed city. She had a room. As she said, she gate-crashed Kim. Hmm. And this woman who was very sad said, well, you go to tell the world what's going on here, how horrible there were a lot of their women working there whose husbands were in prison hmm. at the train station. There were all these women coming, hoping to catch a glimpse of their husband, which was hopeless. Who had been, you know, husbands who had been sentenced to 10, 15 years incarceration and everything. Mm-hmm. It was a really, really depressing place. Yeah. And she saw gangs of thousands of political prisoners being taken off to the forest to harvest wood and stuff. And this is despite the Soviets denying publicly and repeatedly that they used slave labor. So this was very damaging to them that uh, yeah. the story got out with an eyewitness account. Yeah. Rhea got back to Moscow, and two women from Atlanta, Georgia, described as society girls, had decided to go on a great adventure, and their goal was to drive to Moscow and then to drive south to the Central Asian republics of the Soviet Union. So they arrived in Moscow, and they start planning this big trip. They heard about Rhea and spoke to her, and so these three women get in this car that they packed as with as much food, as spare tires, gasoline, anything that they could get onto this vehicle and headed south from Moscow at the end of August, August 30th. The first night that they spent at Tolstoy's estate in Yasnaya Polyana and uh, through Kursk, and they arrived in Kharkiv. And it's in Kharkiv where they begin to see evidence of starvation. In the Russian part, there's still food. It wasn't a problem. You could buy food in the markets and everything like that. They get to Kharkiv, and she describes seeing hungry people on the streets. And while she's there, this girl comes up to her when she's in the hotel and introduces herself. My name is Alan Mertza. I lived nine years in New Toronto. My father worked at the Massey-Harris factory there. We came here three years ago because under this ambitious five-year plan of Stalin's, they were throwing up factories everywhere. There's a big tractor factory that they built in Kharkiv, and so they came to work there. But this woman tells her, she says, have you got any bread? We have nothing to eat. Now, this is a foreign worker pleading for food. She goes to the factory, actually, in the morning. They left early in the morning before the restaurant and the hotel was open. They drive to this factory, which she describes as a dump. And it was supposed to produce you know, 150 tractors a month or something. It was producing you know, one-third or a lot less, and a lot of the tractors were breaking down within short time of being put into use. Anyway, she couldn't get in to see the factory. She thought, well, there's foreign workers working here. They always have cafeterias, especially for them. Well, the cafeterias weren't open. They couldn't get any food. So they head south of the city from Kharkiv, and they're driving past these villages, and many of them are empty. There's nobody in them. There's The doors are open to the houses. The windows are open. The curtains are flapping in the breeze. And Rhea then goes, oh, so this is where these so-called kulaks were expelled from, or people fled from the famine conditions. They'd already abandoned or been driven out. And finally, they see a village where there's some activity. They drive in. There's a bunch of women who are basically selling stuff from their garden. And so she goes and she wants to buy some milk and some eggs for the women to have some breakfast. 
first of all, she starts talking to these women, and nobody understands her. She speaks Russian, but they're all Ukrainian-speaking. Finally, there was this kid who translated and explained that we don't want you to give us eggs and milk. We want to buy some. But they just said, the collective has taken all of our livestock, chickens. We have none of that. One woman goes, you know, I live in a neighboring village here. I might be able to scare something up for you. So she gets in the car with them. They drive a couple of kilometers to this neighboring village, and the head of the village comes out. And the village head says, so you've come here from Moscow, yes, to investigate conditions, yes. He says, well, you tell the Kremlin that we are starving. We are good, loyal citizens of the Soviet Union, but they've taken everything. He says, how we're going to survive the winter once the vegetables from the garden are gone, who knows? And he said, in the spring already of 1932, the children were eating grass like livestock. And the women started undressing the children. And you could see their distended belly and their rickety legs. And you could see the ravaging effects of famine on them. And she had a hard time looking at this. And she describes in her article saying, you know, I had to turn my eyes away. But I made a promise that I was going to tell the world about this. From there, they continued south. I mean, a lot of places, there weren't hotels. So so they go to a sanatorium in Slovyansk. And there's this room with, you know, eight or ten beds. And they said, well, you can sleep here, the three women. But the other women are really curious to talk to her and say, so is it true, you know, you're from the, from America. Is it true that workers have meat to eat and white bread? This is during the Depression. Right. Things were hard here, but workers did far better here uh, in the middle of the Depression, even without a job, than ordinary working people did there. And these women, some of them were there because they were suffering the effects of malnutrition. Wow. Uh, and she describes all of this in great detail in this series of articles. They go across the Kuban. And she describes watchtowers in the corner of these fields and guys with guns sitting there ready to shoot anybody who tries to sneak in and steal a few grains of wheat. Wow. Uh, they make it all the way to Georgia, and it's clear they're, they're waiting for her. Obviously, the secret police, they were going to kick her out. They gave her 24 hours to leave the country. But the British embassy intervened. They managed to get permission for her to be sent back to Moscow under escort. And she was given two days to pack her belongings and to leave the Soviet Union. While she was packing up, who visits her? Malcolm Mugridge. I've been speaking with Yaris Balan from the University of Alberta, where he is director of the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies and coordinator of the Cool Ukrainian Canadian Studies Centre. In part two of this interview, Yaris will tell us more about Rhea Kleiman's reporting on the Soviet Union and the Holodomor, and also her astonishing courage reporting as a Jewish woman in Nazi Germany. I hope you find the story of Rhea Kleiman as intriguing as we do. Until next time, Shalom. Ukrainian Jewish Heritage is brought to you by the Ukrainian Jewish Encounter, based in Toronto, Ontario. To find out more about their work, visit their website and follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Transcripts and audio files of this and earlier broadcasts of Ukrainian Jewish Heritage are available at their website, ukrainianjewishencounter.org, as well as at the Nasholos website, www.nasholos.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. 
It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.